Hey there, Kelly. Hi, Jay. Welcome back to another episode of Reality Quest. Yay. Woo! Today we have Tim Cullings. I'm a huge fan of Tim. He's a local celebrity, basically. I think you've had a lot more interface with him over the past few years than I have. Yeah, well, I met him a couple of years ago. I was connected with him when I was working on a project for the Wing Luke Museum. Right. And he helped um, connect me with some people that were very helpful. And so, like, my first interaction with him is... uh, uh, very, very telling with uh, what we see in the episode and, uh, you know, very, very it showcases who he is as a person yeah. because he basically one of the biggest things he does for the XR and the regular gaming community is that he he makes connections between people. Yeah, he just he really loves to lift up others around him and really sort of like build a vibrant, energetic support group. Yeah, um, which is what what I love about him. And I mean, so for people who don't know him, he's in Seattle and he's a prolific uh, community builder. But that's like his night job you know his his side job his day job is he works at oculus and he actually he's a systems engineer there um and he started there as a field technician but in 2015 so right when they were getting acquired by facebook and they were like growing by a lot uh, in a very (laughs) short thing like a hundred person team to a thousand yeah plus right and tim was behind all of that helping fix the back end and making sure they could do all of that um, as a systems engineer. So he's been there like since the beginning of this kind of like resurgence of VR. And it's really interesting to hear, you know, how that that was a pretty difficult time for them when they were going through that. He was playing uh, like the role of a million different jobs. Yeah. As a field technician, particularly jumping between, um, was it the, the office here in Seattle and then over in uh, Redmond? Right. Yeah. Going back and forth and like basically managing two teams in those areas. And then as a systems engineer now, he's been helping build up all of that backend infrastructure, really roles that uh, you wouldn't get a whole lot of publicity for. So most people don't even realize all of that work that he's done on that side and really just know Tim, the XR and, and game developer, sort of community builder. Yeah. And I mean, that's such a great point because, I mean, I think people forget, obviously, that Facebook had absolutely no you know, it had no work in a related field that was built up right. for VR. So it was yeah, making they, I mean, they a were social media company. Yeah, that. it was it was making a giant change to go and support XR related yeah. content and and all of that. And, and they had, they had just bought Oculus, um, right? So like, yeah, it was a completely new domain for them. Yeah, so Tim yeah. was a big part of that, and um, and he's been there since the beginning. But as we said uh, on the side, he is a huge part of the community here in Seattle and just like everywhere uh, because I know he yeah. travels a lot and does a lot of different things but I think we uh, we had gotten into a few different points in the conversation talking about uh, IGDA or the International Game Developers Association and right. the Seattle chapter here which um, he's on the board of and mm-hmm. then uh, the he's also the VP of Seattle Indies which is a where whereas IGDA is focused on sort of AAA game industry and big name companies like that and yeah. game developers, Seattle Indies is very much about supporting those sort of grassroots ideas and communities and uh, really bringing in new people into uh, game development and creating experiences like that in general. Right. And for anyone who doesn't know that, if you're not as familiar with the games industry, I mean, Jay just said it basically, but AAA, it's like the equivalent of for movies. It's like the big name. Hollywood. Yeah. Hollywood movies versus 
indie movies, independent yeah. budget. Um, versus, like, it's like uh, it's like the Avengers versus like Juno. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Tim works with both, and he's he's so amazing. Like honestly, I don't know when he sleeps because he does so much for the community and and um, <laughs> and bringing people together and and supporting people and yeah. lifting people up. He has always made me feel very comfortable in this industry, and I think I admit in the episode, and I've admitted it in other episodes how. I, I do get nervous, you know, mm. having not been in this industry, coming in as somebody new, coming in as somebody learning. Yeah. And he has been nothing but welcoming to me. I think he, in every way, and I, I hope people see it in, in what he talks about in terms of his values and what he sees, you know, in, mm. in the industry and how it should be. He's such a good leader and model or role model for people in this industry. And actually, he only got into games in like 2009. Yeah. So he has not been a lifer, um, but he's been in it. I think he's celebrating his 10th year now. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's amazing what he's done in those 10 years. And I hope that the biggest thing that comes across in this episode is some of the lessons he's learned and what he is kind of preaching in terms of how to just jump in and get your, you know, hands dirty and meet people and connect and, yeah, and yeah. you know, force your way essentially <laughs> really <laughs> into just, it with a good community. Yeah, like finding the people to collaborate with that you can work with and that are passionate about the same ideas and then running like full force. Um, with those those communities to actually make it happen. Yeah. Because it's always much harder to make anything uh, by yourself, essentially. Right. Yeah. So congratulations, Tim, on your 10th year in the games industry. And he's just That's like big doing more and more. And stick around for the outro because we're going to share um, some of the key websites that you can follow to, to basically, well, to follow him, obviously, but also mm-hmm. some of those groups that we talk about where you can find meetups mm-hmm. or um, social events or whatever it is, whether it's for IGDA or Seattle Indies. We're going to share all that information so Mm -hmm. that you can get out there and be successful like Tim. Yeah. Oh, just one last note here. Um, This was one of our earlier recordings. Oh, Um, good point. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we had maybe done one or two recordings prior to this. uh, So it was pretty early on. I think it was just one. This was our second recording. (laughs) And we delayed it because because we were trying to, since our first episode was a bit more on the social aspect, and this one has social aspects as well, we're just kind of trying to space out some topics. So yeah. Diversify the content a bit. Yeah, right. Basically. So so it's a little delayed. Um, and so there might be some some datedness there. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> with, with what Tim says, probably yeah. just with like their recent game jam. Yeah. Um, but Tim, thanks for being patient. Uh, and yeah. And thank you for your time. And uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If there's anything that kind of like keeps you up at night or just that you spend a lot of time thinking about, uh, maybe at work or outside of work or in any domain, what is something like that that comes to mind? Mm, I guess I think a lot about uh, the interconnectedness of people on this earth. And like, there's so many things that we like barriers that people put between each other and Mm -hmm. different groups put between each other. But it's like, really, nobody's all that different. Like, we all have basic needs and things that keep us alive and battles to survive is pretty much universal. And yeah, it would be better for the planet if we were all uh, more harmonious, I guess, and not Mm -hmm. all just competing all the time. Yeah, there's always that sort of like common foundation that we can all come back to between all humans, (laughs) regardless of where we're coming from. Mm Mm-hmm. 
that seems to really hit um, as core to like what you seem to spend a lot of time doing with just community building. Yeah, absolutely. So like clearly community building is very important to you, trying to make connections between people. How did you first get into all of that? Yeah, you have a How very interesting, <laughs> it looks like I'm very curious about your your journey in life. Because you said you grew up in upstate New York, right? Yeah. Uh, and then I knew we stalked you, so you studied economics there. <laughs> I did, yeah. And what did you like about economics? Uh, I think I liked the ta- the problems that it tackled. It was very focused on like social issues and inequalities and uh, ways to make those things better, ways to fix them, ways to like address all those issues that affect people. Uh, so that was the part that I enjoyed about that. Uh, I also was going for a teaching certificate at that time and got one, but I like never actually was a teacher. Like uh, when I got out of school, there was not really a lot of teaching positions open. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had been working like on the help desk at college, basically, just like oh. as a side job. It's like an IT support type role. Yeah. And so when I got out of school, I got a job at uh, GE working on their help desk and kind of like went at the tech route at that point. As we were kind of looking through things earlier, it's like wondering how you made that transition from <laughs> yeah. at least an economics program. Like economics, into- <laughs> systems engineer. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I've really put my economics degree to use much. It's, uh, it sounds like it, though. I mean, that connection makes a lot of sense to me. It didn't at first on paper, but now it does. So it sounds like you've been focused on or thinking about social impact in different ways your whole life it sounds like where does that come from uh i don't know probably just like my upbringing uh my parents were both like children of the 60s i guess and Uh, okay uh went through the whole movement back then and my dad got sent off to vietnam for a year when he was like 19 and sort of like drilled it into my head of like don't ever get yourself put in the military and like uh, we went to, they were, my parents were like really into church and stuff. So I guess maybe I learned some of it there too. Like some of those ideologies. Yeah. 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 There's definitely a lot of community organization and, uh, always working towards volunteering to help others. I found, and I grew up going to church. I don't really go now, but I can, I can see that that would be a big part of an upbringing as well. Yeah. yeah, and I was like in Boy Scouts as a kid, so learned a lot of it there too, I guess. Nice. How far did you go through Boy Scouts? Not all the way to Eagle Scout, but <laughs> I didn't I think either. like it's okay. <laughs> one or two ranks before that. I don't yeah. remember exactly. Eagle Scout's like the ultimate one. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. And how long does it take to get there? I feel like I went to somebody's Eagle Scout like uh, recognition moment. <laughs> Ceremony <laughs> thing. Yeah. 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 I and like I feel a... like we were old. Like I was like, wait, this is still happening? What? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely communities where that's a big deal. <laughs> like that's a huge accomplishment, <laughs> a lifetime pursuit. At you least had to get like as like twenty something on merit badges or something, and yeah. yeah, do all this community service. And I forget what the requirements were exactly, but yeah, people were like you know driving age by the time they were getting those. So yeah, <laughs> by the time I could drive, I was like, yeah, I'm not <laughs> yeah. doing that anymore. <laughs> well, so what kind of kid were you like? How would you describe yourself? Were you like a gamer? Yeah, pretty much from, like, the first time I was, like, waiting for my sister to be done with uh, dancing lessons or something, and (laughs) there was a Donkey Kong machine in the lobby, (laughs) and, like, 
never seen video games before and played that and was hooked. And then like a few years later, the Atari came into homes and we got one of those. And yeah, I was pretty like shy, quiet kid. Uh, Had like a decent group of friends, but not like a ton of friends and just uh, stayed in my room a lot and played video games. Or when I got to be older, I got like a computer and started like buying magazines where you could code like Mm -hmm. games out of them and stuff like that. Nice. How old were you when you started to do that or dig into building? maybe 12 i don't remember exactly. oh wow okay so you're pretty 12, 12 or 14 it was somewhere in that range yeah what was um i guess of the types of games that you were playing when you were that young what which ones like interested you the most as far as uh starting to build your own probably more like adventure games like i mean back in the early in the 80s it was all just like arcade clones more or less and yeah yeah. The experiences weren't super deep, you know, it was of course. stuff that was designed to take your quarters, basically. Uh, <laughs> All like short levels based. <laughs> super high difficulty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess later on we got into like the Zeldas and the King's Quest type of games mm-hmm. and like those were what held my interest more and like... yeah. When I first started learning to make games, I was like uh, making text adventures and stuff. Nice. And like... I had a mapped out a really ambitious one, but like it was too ambitious because the <laughs> it ran out of the PC out of memory basically. Like, oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> was that a text adventure game? That wow. Okay, so I put like too many rooms in it or something. Awesome. That's awesome. So like narrative kind of or just like the storytelling aspect kind of caught your attention pretty early on. Yeah, and like uh, the first time I saw like three D type games, I think was like final or fantasy star that was a game that was on sega master system and it was like a dungeon crawling type game yeah uh but like you know i I let my imagination imagine like more like modern fps like we have now yeah before like it was even a thing like (laughs) (laughs) so you were kind of like just letting your mind kind of take you off a little bit further than the actual medium was capable at the time yeah, I mean, just based on like how things had progressed so fast, I could kind of like see that that would come at some point, not too far down the line. Mm-hmm. When you're doing that, when you're that young, are you playing as much as you're creating? Probably playing a lot more back then. Okay, but like me and my cousin and our group of friends were always making games, like not even computer games, just like games that we would play outside, like physical. games like make up our own games and rules so you're almost doing a little bit of like role playing or that sort of thing at that age yeah yeah but did you you didn't ever create games for school like you didn't get your degree was in economics you you didn't do anything related to creating games or game develop it development from a scholastic perspective no i mean that kind of stuff didn't really exist when i was in school like I started down like a computer science route when I first went to college. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it was on like pretty like old school, still kind of like mainframey mm-hmm. piece mm-hmm. hardware, and uh, I guess that was still very much a prominent like direction that the industry thought it was going. Or was it kind of? I mean, set? it would. The PCs were like starting to come in at that point. It mm-hmm. was just like probably a holdover from what the school had paid a lot of money for. Yeah. Uh, like it takes a while for those courses to be overhauled <laughs> catch up with the industry yeah and like <clears throat> i wasn't super good at the calculus side of things that you had to be like 
real good at back then. So I kind of just like shifted gears after my first semester of school. I wasn't really like excited about the whole computer science thing anymore. So. Yeah. So you get out of school. You're in upstate New York. You got an economics and, degree. <laughs> right. And then you got your uh, help desk job at GE. But at some point you end up in Seattle. Yeah. So how did that happen? Let's see. So I was working at that job in Lee, Massachusetts at a company called Wave Systems. That was this really small like uh, company that got money in the dot-com like boom era of around 2000. Oh, okay. <laughs> Their whole thing was like secure computing, mm-hmm. uh, which was, they were like way ahead of their time kind of. Because now I see a lot of the things that we were trying to work on uh, back then, like in PCs today. But back then, like nobody understood what we were trying to sell them and why they needed it. (laughs) So I had never really like traveled to the West Coast at all. And somehow we had an office in Cupertino, California with that company. Okay. Right near the Apple office, basically. Mm -hmm. And I got sent out there on a work trip that like I kind of didn't even want to go on, but I just went (laughs) and like... uh, had a friend in San Francisco that had moved there a few years before. So, like, while I was out there, I decided to, like, drive up there and see her and just was, like, kind of blown away by that city. I was, like, really <laughs> loved that city and, like, uh, spent the next couple of years, like, trying to get a job there. What was it that caught your your attention about about that area? Is there just kind of an energy or yeah, culture? Yeah, I think it was just, like, uh, the energy at the time was really good. There was, like, hmm. it was before like the tech boom it hit san francisco so okay it was still pretty like affordable and very hippie yeah <laughs> a lot of like arts type people and creative types and yeah uh it felt very like free and i remember like after the first time i went there thinking uh like, i hope people don't find out about this place because it's ruin it <laughs> well, that was well no <laughs> 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 I don't want to say anything I was in case say. anyone's listening who's from San Francisco. No, I mean, it's left. still great. I still yeah. love going there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> things, have, things have changed Not a what little it was bit. Back then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So I went to see like a career, uh, like a job headhunter type person mm-hmm. when I was there. And like they asked me like if I could work in any industry, like what would I do? And that was like, I never really had even thought about that. Like mm-hmm. it was always just sort of like having a job just to like pay my bills and yeah, have a roof over my head, and that was just sort of like an East Coast mentality, I think. Mm-hmm. Northeast especially, and like, uh, I guess I thought about it, and I was like, well, I guess video games maybe. And uh, After that, I started like applying to almost every like game job in San Francisco. Uh, didn't really have much luck, and then like <laughs> left the job at Wave to go to this other company where I was doing like a remote consulting for the company based in California. Okay. Uh, wasn't really enjoying that. And then just like came across the posting for a job at this company that a game studio called Airtight Games, who like was looking for an IT type person. And like the job posting was like uh, reading my resume, basically. So like, I'm like, this is weird. So I just like (laughs) applied for it and was like, that's probably not going to go anywhere. But uh, they called me up like a week later and was like, you should come out for an interview. And nice. 
that's sort of how that started. Like I never had even thought about Seattle. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> never had visited it. Like they flew me out here to like spend a couple days and it was like February. So it was super dark and <laughs> cold. And, like, <laughs> You're during the You're depth like, of winter. Sweet. This looks awful. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but the people that I met were super cool. And like, I just wanted to work in the games industry. So it was sort of like this weird serendipity that like we had planned a also planned a trip to Seattle because my friend was getting married here to a woman that he met out east, but her whole family's from Seattle. So uh, we came, all my friends came here, and I just never left. Like my job started nice. like the week after the wedding. That's that was my first uh, game Those games, airtight games. Yeah. So what were they working on at the time? The main, uh, well, they had just shipped a game called Dark Void, which is like a third-person uh, oh, jetpack yeah. game. Okay, I do remember that. Yeah. Okay, so this was later <laughs> than I was imagining. I think I was still in like the arcade game era oh, mode. <laughs> this was 2010. Yeah, so not that long ago. No. Uh, and they were just starting to work on this game called Murdered Soul Suspect that mm. they worked on Murdered pretty much. Soul Suspect? <laughs> That's intense. S-O-U-L. All right. All right. It's kind of a soul suspect. Weird yeah. pun. for. Like, <laughs> we made it for a Japanese company, uh, Square Enix, and I guess mm. yeah. the translation of that worked out well in Japanese or something, so that was like why they named it that. Oh, that's mm. cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was like the main game, and then I was a part of a smaller team that was internal to the company that – Okay. Uh, we made a game called Quantum Conundrum that was oh. like a portal-style first-person puzzle game. Oh. Uh, who the team lead on that was uh, one of the creators of Portal who left Valve and came to Airtight. And, like, oh, nice. It was just random that I got to work for her huh. uh, as my first games job. And, like, just she taught me pretty much everything that I know, like, about the industry. So you kind of became a good mentor seems like. Yeah, she was an awesome. excellent mentor, and I just, like, soaked up as much knowledge from her as I yeah, could. That's really cool. Were you a fan of Portal before you worked on that game? Oh, or? definitely, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I honestly, like, didn't really know who she was, and probably for the better, because she interviewed me for that job, and, like, I probably would have panicked if I knew who she was. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Things would not have gone as smoothly. <laughs> And what was, so you said that that resume was, it fit you very well, but in, in what way, what were you actually doing for them at that time? Uh, so when I started there, they like brought me on to like fix up their technical infrastructure. Like the people who built their uh, infrastructure were not like professional, like IT type people. They mm -hmm. were just like developers who, who put their, uh, just kind of put stuff together mm -hmm. uh, ad hoc so that they could just get stuff done and you get the bare minimum working yeah. <laughs> functionality yeah. working like air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> so they brought me into this like one cool capability to work <laughs> let's focus <laughs> on that and then we'll build everything else around it <laughs> i think when it started it was not a huge company and then they kind of just like really slogged their way through dark void which uh was a hard uh, experience from what i've heard from people that i know mm. that were there and then after that they like really ramped up to almost 100 people Oh wow! when we were working on Soul Suspect. So like they wanted to have better infrastructure and more reliable technology in place. So like I spent like almost a year rebuilding the whole thing, basically <laughs> uh, making Overall. it way more like robust and workable and mm -hmm. uh, in 
implemented a whole bunch of uh, stuff for them so that you know the studio could be uh, functional and productive. Yeah. So yeah. was all of, was all of that knowledge or experience is familiarity with just building like scalable infrastructure and like backend to support those kinds of projects? Was that just your own gathered experience over time? Because yeah, I mean, it was a very cool. similar like thing to when I was at that other company, Wave Systems. Mm-hmm. That was a very small, like, 100-person to 200-person company. And I built their infrastructure mm-hmm. the same. So it was that was familiar to me. Okay. Uh, I had to learn, like, all the game-building tools. Like, source, they use, like, Perforce for source control, which most people do in the Perforce. games industry. Is that still a major? Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, and I had used a lot of other, like, source control at my other job. So it was, like... okay. It was a lot of familiar stuff. It was just learning the specific tools and pipelines. But like, yeah. uh, once that part was all stabilized, uh, there wasn't as much like day to day IT work for me to do. And like, mm-hmm. honestly, I didn't move across country to like still be doing IT work all the time. <laughs> so like, uh, <clears throat> they got me into doing more games production related stuff okay. uh with the, with the team like i took on qa for the oh, couple of games that we did okay uh i was like the community manager doing like social media posting and updating the website oh, and nice. like ran like our twitter and facebook and all that stuff and like toward the end when the company was like going through closing down i was like a producer on one of our release titles doing like uh, DLC stuff. Oh, okay. Wait, DLC? Sorry, what is it? Downloadable content, sorry. Oh. Yeah. So the initial game is released and then you have like iterative content that's released ah, after that. I see. Okay. So have you ever played Portal before? I have, yeah. Okay. That was actually like the first game. This probably won't be a quick tangent, but I'll call it one. Um, <laughs> I, having not played games, mm-hmm. I didn't, and by that, I mean, like, I played video games, but that was Mario Kart and, like, Wave Runner games. It was just yeah, total yeah. racing sport games. And oh, the common arcades. The stuff. only game I had played while I was young that was anything different from that was I happened upon Zelda. And that was hilarious Ooh. because <laughs> I was staying in a, in a beach house and it was raining the whole time. And it was just my – I was uh, probably a freshman in high school. And mm. we – like went through this closet desperate for something to do and found some random Nintendo 64 (laughs) games. And we're like, what's this Zelda one? Ocarina of Time? What is that? (laughs) We just like popped it in not knowing anything. And then like a year later, I was still playing that game, (laughs) trying to beat it because trying like not to cheat stuck in the water temple, you know, just like (laughs) we did end up cheating. Um, I still get shit from my friend back home for not having played Ocarina of Time when it came out. Okay, Mm. yeah. When did it actually come out? I don't even know this because I played it so... (laughs) So, I don't know. I didn't know when it it was related to that. I'm sure what the year came out, 96 maybe? Okay. Ocarina of Time was 96? Maybe. Yes. <clears throat> well, I guess we'll look it up. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, this was delayed for sure. Yeah, I don't. I never got into Zelda until uh, actually like Twilight Princess. Oh, wow. so I was really late to the game, mm. and I think that was on the Wii, not the GameCube. <laughs> yeah. 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 So well, anyways, 
I, that was the only game I had ever played like that, and I loved it. But I truly was like, I can't do this with my life. I mean, I was <laughs> – my mom took it away from me for a little bit because I started having nightmares about the zombies that come out when you turn it into an adult. <laughs> and I'd be like, no. You know, and like my mom would wake up, and uh, I would be like, Mom, I can't sleep. By the way, I was like way too old to be bothering my mom about not being able to sleep. Okay? Like it was bad. You're like and 15 so, years old, right? rolling into the yeah, yeah right? exactly, <laughs> pretty much. Back to your room. So my mom, so my mom took it away, and eventually I got it back. But I, it was so addictive. I was like, I can't, I can't play anything else like this. So I just stopped yeah. playing games. Until basically somewhat recently, like in the past couple of years, and Portal mm-hmm. was one of the ones Ooh. that I started to play. But it's a weird mentality, you know, playing games. It's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. And you start feeling stupid. You mm-hmm. know, you're like, am I the only dumb one who can't figure this out? But that's a whole mentality you learn, which is like, oh, just fuck around, around. with some things in the yeah. room rather than like follow the clear it, trail or something it does get particularly tricky with like puzzle type games like that yeah i mean i definitely found them frustrating sometimes i don't i was never one of the types of gamers growing up that was like a heavy like completionist mm. um i i think i really gravitated more towards the like open world rpg type things where you could kind of just do whatever explore around and create your own story mm-hmm. so that's why i was sad that i missed like ocarina of time or wind waker any of those games because they seemed like they really catered to that audience too yeah and if you get into breath of the wild you'll just oh god never no, play don't even start a breath of the wild <laughs> never play anything ever again <laughs> well i did. i'm still super early on in that game because i played it for like one day in christmas and was like gotta stop <laughs> <laughs> you're like i can feel it it's i can gonna... feel it coming on <laughs> the addiction like, is someday coming back. yeah it's just i just need to take like a quick vacation and just play that game yeah it's but... good to play on the plane like Ooh, yeah, especially with the... Oh, I guess you can... Yeah, that's the whole point, is that you can yeah. take it to go. Mm-hmm. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I can't remember what we were talking about. Portal. Uh, Portal. And I actually, you mentioned something about... Um, you had started to manage the like Twitter community, mm-hmm. or oh, the yeah. community pages and whatnot. Um, was that like your first foray into interfacing more with the community around a, a, a game or a thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was more like... Uh, hot potato to me basically like oh, okay hey we need a facebook page and a twitter <laughs> so i created it and they're like oh you want to run it too i'm like i guess i don't <laughs> i don't really know what i'm doing but uh, <laughs> you're just like completely fresh at that point from that perspective <laughs> yeah and what year was this i'm like what is running facebook in 2010 like it was like I 2011 2012 yeah. okay Oof, yeah that would have been early i remember getting a facebook in like 2009 mm-hmm. but i don't think it was I like even... yeah right when like businesses were just starting to like yeah Come on. MySpace was probably still around, wasn't it? A little bit. It was on the way out, I'm sure, (laughs) at that point. But, like, Twitter wasn't just, like, a totally, like, toxic trash heap at that point. Like, there were still... Oh, (laughs) there were still some, like, useful... It wasn't a mountain of just, like, trolls and negativity and and lots of arguments. (laughs) Just yet. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Well, Twitter, Twitter is a double-edged sword, I feel like. There's, there's, like, good things about it, but it also is... It can be stressful these days. So maybe a good this is a good time to kind of like fast forward a little bit to like now you first started with that Twitter page and that Facebook page with uh, Airtight, Mm -hmm. and now you've been doing a lot more community organization work and uh, community building outside of of your day job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that kind of like gestated from uh, 
my time at Airtight, like uh, mm-hmm. we were promoting our game Quantum Conundrum, and my team lead asked if anybody wanted to go to uh, PAX East, which is like the oh, yeah. Boston version of Penny Arcade Expo, which mm-hmm. started here in Seattle, and uh, the second one started in Boston, which happens around Easter time. Uh, so, like, I volunteered, and apparently nobody else did. So, oh. <laughs> uh, I got to go on the trip, and like, <laughs> I mean, I wanted to go. I was like, yeah, you're like going, sweet, going to PAX and like going as an exhibitor was like a goal of mine when I got into the industry. Awesome. So, like, uh, I was excited and yeah. nervous because I'd be talking to like game press people, but that actually turned out to be like a lot of like bloggers and stuff and. This kid who like literally like had his parents like bring him to the thing so he could interview <laughs> us. So that kind of demystified it for me quite a bit. <laughs> Made it seem a lot uh, easier and yeah. in my reach. Uh, <laughs> You're like, well, if this kid can do this. <laughs> but like I didn't have a lot of exposure to indie developers before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my f- my lead at the point uh, knew some people, so... She took me to meet a bunch of uh, the people that were showing at the Indie Mega Booth, which is like, if you're not familiar with PAX, I guess it's this like off sh- this group of indie developers that uh, get this booth space together mm-hmm. at inside of PAX, and like Indie Mega Booth is a company, oh, and like okay. they do all the logistical stuff dealing with the convention, and they get the space, gotcha. and then they pick the games, and like all the games people do is pay and you make it with a fee and then show up and they don't have to deal with like oh okay all of the logistics of getting their game into a big convention so they just kind of consolidate a bunch of independent developers um like games into one sort of area yeah yeah and they That's like nice. yeah and they like have people that uh sort of are like have good like taste in games and like mm-hmm. help the public find like good independent games so like yeah that was sort of my exposure to that whole scene and like okay. has become like the thing that I most look forward to at PAX every year really is like going there because I've made like so many friends and it's just like a big reunion basically. <laughs> uh, so that was like when I met those people and realized like who, what kind of people they were and like uh, saw what they were working on and it just like made me want to be more involved with them and realized it was like, way easier to connect with them than I imagined. Like I had only, I only like really knew the people that I worked with Mm -hmm. and like had no connection with the bigger community. So, so was that more a group of like independent developers and, and, and people, whereas your team that you had been working with at the time was like a, maybe a larger uh, dev company. Yeah. I mean the team I was on was like a development company. Yeah. So those are the game devs that I knew at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then, like going and meeting more developers, not only the independent people, but like people from bigger companies and all over the world, and like realizing that they were like just like me, basically, and yeah, that just made me like feel like more a part of the community and connected. And I uh, started going to like some of the locally <clears throat> run game developer events around here. After that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the IGDA events, which is International Game Developers Association. Uh, they were running like different events at places like Bungie oh. uh, or Microsoft. And like at the time, it was kind of just like a cool opportunity to go visit 
the bungee office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then, like, uh, they also had some pretty interesting presentations. And I started, like, meeting people and making friends uh, at these different meetups. And in, like, 2014, uh, Airtight basically ran out of money and uh, the company <laughs> went under, like... Uh, so I was out of work that year mm-hmm. and got more involved in doing stuff with Seattle Indies. Like that was sort of my way to stay connected to the industry and like yeah. stay networked with people and like try to find another job in the industry basically. Mm-hmm. And at that time, so are you creating anything or are you just going and meeting up with them? I always had this feeling like you – I've always been nervous to go to your events, basically, because <laughs> if I'm not in the process of creating something, I'll feel like, oh, I won't have anything to talk about. No, I wasn't really uh, creating at that point. I was mainly just hanging out, hanging out, trying to find work. <laughs> uh, I also always used to like organize uh, parties and stuff <laughs> for my friends back when I lived on the East Coast. So nice. That's kind of just something that comes natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just at a much larger scale these days. Yeah. So, like, the first thing that I organized was, like, a PAX party. Yeah. Uh, somebody, like, that I didn't sort of knew but didn't really know made, like, a Facebook post that was, like, we should have, like, a developer party at PAX. Uh, and I was, like, okay, I can make that happen. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Natural skill set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Networks got like uh, PopCap to let us use their office. Nice. Because they used to host uh, the Unity user group meetups, which I had started going to because we were making Unity games at Airtight and I was trying to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I made friends with the people that uh, worked at PopCap and like they had us there and we had like a 75 person party with some Whoa. like uh, indie games that were going to be that were like local and mm-hmm. They bought pizza and stuff for us. And I was also volunteering for my friends uh, at their indie mega booth, PAX booth that year. So, like, they came and they brought some people that they knew from other booths. And, like, uh, that was really, like, my launch pad into, like, meeting all the people that I'm friends with today. And uh, the first, like, organizing thing that I did for Seattle Indies. Yeah. Uh, And then, say, over time, it seems like you kind of ended up getting into... uh like a leadership sort of role in the organization. Yeah. I mean, when it's, when I started, it was still just like a meetup and it was like more or less a club of friends that just like got together every month for the social events Mm -hmm. uh, that we were doing at the 17 bit studios down in Soto. Uh, It was very much like uh, you had to know somebody uh, kind of clicky type of thing to get into Mm. It didn't feel quite as much of like an open community at the time. It was once you got in, but like okay. uh, I could see how it'd be like kind of intimidating. And it, it was to me too, because it was in like this dark warehouse room and I didn't really know anybody. <laughs> and like, you can't see them, so it's really awkward. Yeah. Uh, but I got, I got over that pretty fast, met some cool people that welcomed me in. And like, nice. uh, after like a year, the 17 bit people, like half of them decided to move to Japan. And uh, we sort of didn't know what was going to happen with Seattle Indies because they had been like the driving force behind it. They kind of, they hosted the first Seattle Indies Expo in 2011. They like were always organizing the socials and having it at their place. Mm -hmm. And like 
we didn't really know if people were going to still come, like where we could even have the socials. So yeah, uh, at about that time, the first Indies workshop opened up uh, right next door to them uh, in Soto. And so we kind of like moved our events over there and me and the four other people who founded the now nonprofit version of Seattle Indies sort of took over as the main organizers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Alex Shearer who had been running his own meetup called the Seattle Games Cooperative. Uh, we convinced him to like merge his thing into Seattle Indies. And uh, he became one of like the main organizers with us. Uh, so we were, the social kind of was transient for a while. It was uh, at the workshop, but that was like, uh, I don't know. It had different uh, management that was more concerned about uh, liquor laws and type of things like that. Like oh. you get into some weird uh, <laughs> legal space when you have like a hundred person yeah. BYOB party and <laughs> it's at somebody's office and they could get themselves in some trouble. And oh yeah. So, uh, <laughs> after that we kind of bounced around to a few different places. We're at like Raygun lounge. Uh, but that was like, we outgrew that real fast. Yeah. It sounds like, it. uh, and are at optimism every month now. Oh. And so the C the Seattle Indies, am I calling it the right thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, the International Game Developers Association. Those are two separate things, but they seem to have very similar goals. Like, how do you, and you play a role in both of those Correct. now. So what's the difference? How do you separate them? Uh, so Seattle Indies is all Seattle-focused. Like, mm-hmm. we are focused on creating events and community for local developers and helping them, like, show their games to the Seattle area public okay. uh, IGDA Seattle is like the Seattle chapter of this international organization that has like its whole own infrastructure mm. uh, governing board and everything. We're just a small part of that. Uh, okay. IGDA is more aimed at like professional, mm. like AAA, I guess you would call them okay. developers. Yeah. Uh, People that work at like Microsoft and make like Halo and stuff like that is sort <laughs> of. I mean, mm. they represent all game developers, but yeah, there's definitely like more of a like focus on people who work at a game studio mm-hmm. than on the independents. I would say. Okay, cool. So for for Seattle Indies, what is it? Is are those meetups the primary uh, medium for showcasing those games or? Uh, do they you all like help get them on other platforms or greater visibility? Yeah, I mean Seattle Indies the org doesn't really do any sort of like publication or okay anything like that. We just create the events. Uh, we have uh, six or so like regular events that happen every month. Okay, uh, we have our weekly indie support group that happens every Saturday. Uh, at AIE, which is the Academy of Interactive Entertainment over in the Seattle Center. Okay. And that's like a thing, a co-working session, basically. We have like 20 to 30 people come every weekend, Mm -hmm. work on their games together, Mm -hmm. meet new people to work with, uh, ask each other questions, learn more about games making. And that's sort of like the first step for people who want to be in our group, I would say. Like, 
when people ask like what should I go to first, that's like it's either that or the social basically are like the two different mm-hmm. the two like points of entry. So the social one seems like it's actually for a broader audience, it's just anybody that's interested in, in indie games here in Seattle. Yeah, and lately it's been not just indies, like we've had people from like Valve and uh the bigger studios start to come to those. Oh, and, okay. Uh, more high profile. They've grown to like over 125 people every month are coming to those. Wow. Okay. Uh, that was where like getting the nonprofit status has been helpful. Was <laughs> like because uh, Optimism gives us that space for free, basically. Since nice, <laughs> we're a nonprofit. Yeah. We bring that many people to them on a Tuesday night. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty big flow of business. Mm-hmm. What are your personal priorities or goals when it comes to working as I'll call it an uh, what do I call it? community Organ- builder. Yeah, community builder organization. Well, actually, I mean, would you call yourself a community builder? Okay. Yeah, definitely. I mean, our goal is just uh, inclusivity and mm-hmm. welcoming for all anybody who's like <laughs> interested at all in making games. Mm-hmm. We try to build a community where they feel safe and uh, empowered to do that. Basically, yeah. Uh, you know, we have game jams that happen every quarter-ish uh, where people get together for 48 hours and try to make a game based on, like, a random topic. Or uh, more recently, we've done one with the University of Washington where we're making games based on climate change research. Oh, okay. And that's, like, a good entry point. Like, people say they want to try making games. I'll tell them to, like go to a game jam and just try it out because it's very low, like low pressure, low stakes. Yeah. Like you're not it trying to make low a low pressure. Cause man, I've been in those VR hackathons. It does not feel like low pressure. It I'm like, let me get this straight. We're all ending our work week, work week to not sleep for 48 <laughs> <Any>. hours. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> get yelled at by our teammates. Yeah. I Maybe mean, that was just me. No, um, yeah, you can they, make it high pressure, but I mean, it just depends. Yeah. You don't have the pressure of trying to make a commercially viable product. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess like, it's um, all relative. Yeah. It's a 48 hour experiment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our, com- our community here is pretty like hardcore about <laughs> hackathons and stuff like that. So, yeah. I definitely get that, and like we get a lot of like really high level people that do these. But you can also just be somebody that's never done it before and yeah. get just as much out of it, if not more. So yeah, yeah, they definitely tend to seem very uh, open to like literally anybody jumping in and figuring out. I don't even know how I can contribute, but mm-hmm. let me just get on a team and see what happens. Yeah, that's. I mean, we definitely make sure to tell people like, you know, if, if you see a new person, just welcome them and help them as much as you can to be feel like they're a part of the team. Mm-hmm. And what do you, so that type of attitude, it seems very prevalent no matter what it, like you said, it's making help accessible. It's making the general industry accessible to people and it's bringing people together to learn from each other. It sounds like, and all of that, but what, what do you like about that? What do you think it ultimately adds up to? Uh, I think it's just like sharing a sense of purpose, uh, feeling like you have a support system. Like when I sort of like crashed out of my job at Airtight, I didn't really feel like I had that and didn't know where to turn. And then like found these communities uh, with 
people that were pretty open and accepting. Mm-hmm. And so creating like a space like that where people who are either trying to find a job in the industry, trying to be just like a professional independent developer and make it on their own or like trying to find their way back into another job if if they're out of work, you know. Yeah. Just giving them that uh, that community, basically, that support system so that they don't feel like they're all on their own and people can uplift each other, I guess. Yeah. How do you stay inspired as a community builder, I imagine it's exhausting. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and a little bit thankless? Sometimes. Uh, I mean, there's aspects of it that are definitely super thankless. Like, uh, we implemented a code of conduct for Seattle Indies to help with the whole safe and inclusive space. Uh, but what goes along with that is that sometimes people violate it and you have to deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's your friends and then it's like mm. uh, not the most fun thing in the world, but uh, yeah. is necessary for consistency and like the safety of the overall health of the overall group to like be pretty strict about enforcing those things regardless of the individuals that uh, you might have to, you know, take action against, I guess. Yeah. Generally upholding that trust and like the safety and security of that community mm-hmm. and the culture. And there's a lot of like, you know, email writing and (laughs) meetings that you have to do that like aren't the fun part but uh the thanks that you get is like just the warm feeling of the community when everybody's together and having a good time and uh people are just like coming back a lot and bringing their friends and Mm. just seeing the community blossom and grow and like see people come to your game jam and make a game and then decide to like turn that into an actual product and see them like start winning awards for it and like mm-hmm. i just like to set up a space for like creators to be able to create and like to see that happen at our events is pretty awesome mm-hmm. that is awesome how did you how did you i mean i suppose by close association games are kind of a natural fit for for vr and mm-hmm. these newer mediums for the for those kinds of experiences but um how did you initially get started in working within uh xr as a as a space uh yeah so that was like my next uh step uh my the audio director from uh airtight got hired at oculus they were in like a similar boat they needed like it support badly because <laughs> they everybody were everybody like, seems to uh, need <laughs> help they with listed that. up the covers they're like shit <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they Get had Tim like Cullings. <laughs> somebody called Tim. Basically, <laughs> it was like six months after the Facebook acquisition had happened, and oh, like okay. uh, Facebook wow. was really not prepared to handle like PC game content developers, people building mm-hmm. hardware. Like they were making a website with web applications, right? Yeah, on like MacBooks, and so their whole like support infrastructure was built. Uh, basically from people who used to work at the Apple store came over to work at Facebook Mm -hmm. as like their help desk people to like support people who had problems with MacBooks. And like my first week there, I discovered like uh, they didn't actually like solve or fix any problems. They just sort of like, if you had a problem with your laptop, you just got a new one. And (laughs) (laughs) they threw the old one in a closet in the back. (laughs) Basically like, we'll deal with these later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just got shipped off somewhere. So like when we hired all these when Oculus brought in all these people who were making 3D games on like high-end PCs and mm-hmm. 
having a lot of problems getting them to work. The the people that were there just like didn't have the experience to be able to deal with that. And yeah, so like my friend like knew that I was still looking for work and just like helped me get the job there. And uh, that was like a similar situation to airtight except instead of growing to like a hundred people we grew to like you know a thousand people real fast (laughs) (laughs) and like uh i was basically the only person i was managing the seattle and the redmond office for a while by myself oh wow uh and that was so a sprint for like nine months until they finally (sighs) brought in somebody to manage uh the Redmond office. Redmond, yeah. 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 <laughs> Divide the responsibility a little bit. They gave me a choice. The traffic alone. <laughs> I was actually living in Redmond at the time. Uh, I had to pick Seattle because they were trying to ship the rifts at that time. Mm. And like the person that they brought in just wasn't going to have enough experience to be able to like don't know. <laughs> support what they needed. Because like uh, it was fast and furious and like you had to be able to <laughs> go from day one and like uh, having been through like a game release before, I sort of knew what to expect. So, but it was yeah. that times like a hundred because we were also like making a game on a pl- hardware platform that essentially didn't exist. Was like mm-hmm. uh, more many factors of complexity that yeah. I didn't even expect. It imagine... boggles my mind. <laughs> I mean, it's ongoing. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I would imagine. I mean, first off, you needed to have the experience of just taking like an initial prototype all the way to scaling up to this huge production release and then you also got the brand new hardware platform to work with and that whole ecosystem so and just like speaking the language of game development and like understanding uh the different like milestones and Mm -hmm. what teams were going to need support when uh Mm -hmm. was sort of something that i already knew so yeah that's why i went with that it was a lot of long hours (laughs) (laughs) yeah were you still managing communities then or did you take a break <laughs> uh no i mean i was doing some of the organizing but it wasn't like it is today yeah uh like i kind of got involved in igda towards the end of 2015 but like i wasn't like one of the leaders at that point i was just like going to the meetings and helping out yeah and like the duties with organizing seattle indies then was less because we were a smaller organization didn't have as many meetups and didn't have as many like volunteers and we weren't at a nonprofit then. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I was kind of like 2016 was the first year that I ran a global game jam. Mm. And that was like the one weekend that I didn't have to be at the office for like <laughs> 17 <laughs> hours. So I, instead I was uh, in a warehouse watching people <laughs> make video 48. games. Yeah. <laughs> Oh <laughs> that was a break. <laughs> oh, my oh gosh. you're crazy. <laughs> were you were you considered uh, a systems engineer at that point? No, oh, okay. uh, I was a field technician. Oh, wait, which, you were a field technician in charge of both teams at Redmond and here in Seattle. I mean, field technician is kind of like uh, a fancy word they use for like IT people. Uh, <laughs> It works field technician because you're not uh, working at headquarters, basically. Yeah. You're actually in the field. Yeah. It's very hands-on But like, approach. I was, I got handed everything, basically, when I started there, like, <laughs> facilities, QA a little bit, giving people demos that would come in for, like, uh, you know, just visitors or people that were interviewing and like, making sure all that stuff worked. <laughs> 
That's so crazy. they were just like, oh, we don't have a specific person to do all yeah. of these different things. So the field tech will take care of it. Procurement, like all kinds <laughs> of different things. And like, wow. uh, eventually they started hiring people. And now there's like whole teams that do all those things that I used to do mm. by myself. But, you know. <laughs> do you do you say that to them? Like if they're stressed out, you're like, oh, well, interesting. I used to do that all by myself. Some days I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You should be glad you have a whole team to yeah, with must this be, now. must be nice because back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay. Do you feel like you have a vested interest in VR, XR in general? I mean, you've always been interested in games, but are you drawn to the XR? Yeah. I mean, in like the 90s, I remember seeing like the early prototypes of oh. VR and like some like reports about how it was going to like change the world and <laughs> be this incredible like innovation. So the earlier hype cycles. <laughs> yeah. So like I wanted to see that. Like I knew that back then it was not going to happen because it just the technology wasn't ready. Yeah. When the headset weighs like 20 pounds. <laughs> yeah. It's not feasible. And just like... <laughs> 3D rendering wasn't very good and yeah. frame rate was terrible and all those all those things that work against a good VR experience. Mm-hmm. So getting to be like a part of the uh, company that shipped the first like, you know, consumer grade mm-hmm. VR headset was like uh, a real big like achievement in my career. Honestly. Like, mm-hmm. Was there a big learning curve at all going from 2D, I'll call it, even though it's all kind of 3D, to working in VR systems? Or is it all kind of, it's just very transferable? Yeah, I mean, the system support uh, side isn't really that much different. I mean, you need like more horsepower to... More performance. Yeah, better performance Mm -hmm. to be able to keep up with the level of stuff that the artists and game designers are making. but it's pretty transferable, I'll see. Do you have, uh, I know you, you, from an early age, had a very vested interest in video games mm-hmm. in particular, but now having gotten into the the VR and just kind of general XR space, do you feel like that's kind of the direction that you're going to be continuing to go? Or is there still just something that is uh, innately fascinating for you about video games, the experience? Not necessarily the hardware or the medium. Yeah, I mean, I still play a lot of games. I mean, not as many as I used to, but like when I get the chance, yeah. I'm usually too busy making events for people that make games to be able to (laughs) have any time to play games. But uh, yeah, I mean, games are still a passion of mine. And I think like VR, XR is going to be a great way for people to experience uh, game content in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's like so many more applications. Yeah. For VR, uh, that a lot of us didn't either didn't expect or didn't imagine people were gonna like make with it once they got the technology in their hands. Yeah, I feel like it early on it was viewed as like a natural progression from games, but then people started experimenting with it outside of that medium. Yeah, I mean, we were sort of targeting games people because they're always the early adopters of new yeah. technology. They get it, you know, that mm. they're always like looking for the next big new thing that's going to come along and catch their interest and get them excited. Uh, But there's so many different creators, like narrative people, uh, social impact type applications. Like it's kind of just limitless, really. 
maybe from your perspective, how do we, what is like a potential path to get companies or larger companies to be experimenting more with, uh, with VR in not necessarily the traditional uh, mass market audiences for what we would normally sell the types of games like um, I mean, first person shooters, <laughs> you know, the, the kinds of things that make a lot of money right now, it just seems like they're still uh, really being conservative about uh, the types of VR experiences that they're building for major platforms. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the problem is people just don't still don't really know what is going to be like, it's a big popular thing in VR. Like, yeah, uh, Beat Saber came out last year and like has been like one of the most successful mm-hmm. VR titles ever. And that was made by like a five to six person team over in like uh, Romania. Yeah, just super <laughs> pretty basic experience, but like really fun and like pretty polished. Just kind of people like want to swing lightsabers in VR and so it's true. they put My that to put that to music it. and like, really yeah oh yeah so like to me I don't just want to see like Call of Duty in VR like <laughs> I've played enough Call of Duty like yeah I want to see like things that make use of VR and like it's different strengths yeah just like if it's something that I could play on a PlayStation then like just adding a VR mode doesn't do a whole lot for me like yeah uh, I'd rather see it like built with all the different considerations of VR in mind from the beginning. Yeah. You had mentioned that a lot of your passion lies within things like social impact or accessibility and connection. And specifically, I mean that the, the types of VR prod projects or XR projects you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas of what that looks like to you or have you experienced anything that you think is like this is in the direction of what you want to see. Uh, I mean, the one that comes to mind is the one that the UN made of like the Sudanese uh, refugee camps. Oh, that like I forget who made the experience, but basically they made 3D or 360 videos of those camps mm-hmm. and then took them to the UN and put the ambassadors in the experience and like completely changed their mind about uh, they were like not going to give funding or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, once they got to experience that, it, like, totally changed their view on everything and what those, what the actual experience was like. So, yeah, uh, getting to experience, like, those real-world conditions uh, in a way that you probably normally wouldn't uh, is powerful to be able to change people's worldview on things. It's yeah. a very powerful tool for creating empathy. Exactly. Right. So with your experience in... Uh, in organizing communities and all of that. But I wonder what you would suggest with your experience about how how XR could work on building its community better. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty good one now. I think maybe uh, it lost a little momentum because at first it was kind of, it was pretty financially driven. Like uh, when I would go to the meetups in like 2015 and 2016, there was like deals happening and right <laughs> investors were coming to these things because it was like the hot new thing and oh. everybody wanted to jump in yeah and then like when it didn't turn out to be like this massive gold rush i think uh that died down quite a bit yeah and uh but now what's left is like the people that are really invested and interested in making these making experiences for these technologies and seeing what uh they can do to like push their limits and come up with new ideas and new uses for uh, the stuff that we're making. 
Does it feel like the industry is kind of settling out into a healthier uh, sort of foundation after that that sort of hype or bubble that happened over the past few years now? Where yeah, I feel like it is, and I feel like things are going like at a much faster rate than I even expected. Like when I first started, it wasn't that long ago, uh, and we were still using just like DK twos that yeah <laughs> uh, only had like basic head tracking and no controllers and. Mm-hmm. The experiences were pretty rudimentary. Uh, And fast forward till just like a few months ago, we came out with the Quest that's like wireless, you know, pretty high-end VR experience that like I didn't think we'd see until like maybe another two or three years at least. And like uh, having a couple of strong players in the market like Oculus and Valve and uh, Sony like has mm-hmm. sort of helped push that along and keep the like competition going between the companies to innovate. Yeah, and really like tackle the just general engineering problem of building more portable headsets. <laughs> yeah, and like hardware. what you said earlier about like getting bigger companies to experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, it takes a company with a lot of resources. <laughs> I mean, we have an entire uh, research department over in Redmond that's doing all that experimentation on stuff that we'll either be seeing in the next five to 10 years or mm-hmm. maybe we'll never see, but they're like <laughs> doing some super uh, interesting stuff over there, uh, trying to push the whole medium forward and yeah. create stuff for the future. Do you, do you feel like the, um, a lot of these companies that are developing the hardware and supporting these ecosystems, um, are they, do they value or help out the independent developer communities enough or is that something that maybe they haven't like fully embraced yet or i think they do now more okay uh when i first started there it was kind of like uh people were i don't want to say like it was nepotistic but it was a little bit it was sort Mm -hmm. of like but that was for a reason and like they needed people that could deliver what they were trying to do in a hurry and yeah like they that they relied on and had worked with before so yeah uh but like now i'm starting to see like oculus hire more of the people that are from the local developer community Mm -hmm. that they kind of wouldn't give like a second thought to a couple years ago yeah but now they're these are the people that are like the ones that have the experience yeah working with this stuff i mean so now they're needing to bring those people in to like help guide us more towards the future. Yeah, these are all those early experimenters and people that have been floating around the community for the last few years now. Yeah, like the hardcore people that stuck with it are now the people that are getting the work there because like yeah. they know sometimes they know the hardware better than we do, you know. Mm-hmm. So you had talked about how your goals within community organization are to make people feel comfortable and welcome. Um, and then we also talked about how in XR, a lot of the the downer right now is fundraising. True. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm curious about like how can community help bring that industry to a bigger place where it can be getting more funding? Or is it that community is just there to keep you busy and happy and connected and inspired while shit's going down or up <laughs> yeah. or wherever it's at? Yeah. Or do you think it actually can bring it up yeah i mean that's a big question and kind of there's like the chicken and egg problem of like we need more headsets to be out in the world yeah to make it like (laughs) 
viable to hire more developers to make more content to provide for more people who have headsets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in the meantime, like the people who got into uh, VRXR development and have stuck with it are like keeping a strong community uh, to help support each other. Like while maybe they're struggling a bit or financially, maybe it's not like the big boon that they had hoped it would be. Yeah. Uh, but they're also learning and pushing things forward in ways that other companies might not be. Uh, so hopefully, like if they can keep themselves strong and together, uh, then like when the industry is ready for them, then they'll still be like able to capitalize on that. Uh, I mean, I know like f- for me internally, I try to uh, push to have different events for the VR community here. Mm-hmm in Seattle uh, to try to bring people into our office and get a chance to see what we're working on and what it's like to work there and just be welcoming and like Mm -hmm. let them know that we're here and like that we support them and want them to feel like we're also a part of the community and not just like this big (laughs) monolithic unapproachable thing that like uh, nobody gets to see or hear from, you know, closed doors, black boxes. (laughs) Like I try to host at least one IGDA event a year at the office, mm-hmm. uh, and then I do like the PAX party that I talked about earlier has now yeah. like morphed and become the like official Oculus uh, kickoff party, and we invite VR nice. and indie developers into the office to just network and see the place, see the space. Yeah, for for people who are just interested in helping move forward the XR industry through community events, activities, and organization. You've had a lot of success with that, obviously. Do you have a set of principles or like general advice that you would give people? Because you talked about advice for people who are interested in joining the community. Mm -hmm. But what about if you want to be more involved in running them? Yeah. uh, I mean, recently we brought in uh, a couple different groups under, like we sponsor different groups through Seattle Indies now. Uh, and that was mainly just people, the organizers of those groups got excited to start new meetups. Like we have our diversity collective meetup mm-hmm. that was started by some Seattle Indies people and some Seattle VR people uh, to create like a safe environment for diverse creators, basically. Uh and then it's more morphed into like a diverse people in tech now. Uh, but for those people, like for me, it's about being reliable and being consistent and like just being available. Like you have to, if you're going to run, if people come to me and say they want to like run a meetup for Seattle Indies, I'll always tell them like try it first, like informally uh, once or twice. And if it gets a good turnout, then we can like make it into an official thing. But like, I don't want to, like I have to make sure that the person is going to like show up and like do all the work that's required to like make it a good event Yeah. Mm-hmm. before I'm going to like uh, put my trust in them basically. Makes sense. Of like all of the different mediums of like storytelling, narrative and expression, creativity, like games as an art form um, and specifically games in VR um, in the sort of more immersive medium as an art form. Like what is the, potential impact or like the real sort of value of carrying that forward into VR and like, I don't know, where do you see that at least, uh, the positive potential? What, what is the kind of gain that you see, um, from society of 
really embracing that more and and exploring that more as a medium. It's hard to say. Like, I mean, I'd love to see games become less about violence and more about collaborating and cooperating and mm. building things together. I guess sort of like Minecraft maybe a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Have you <laughs> So like just the general power to like bring people together. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that maybe we haven't really... We've focused so much, I feel like, on com- competition thus far in video games. But maybe I feel like that's always going to be an element of it. I oh, mean, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's like designed for that and uh, involves a decent amount of skill. Yeah. And I think you'll see like different types of people become like gamers as more like immersive, uh, like full body type AVR XR experiences come along. You'll see like athletes, like real actual, like yeah, athletes actually getting into it in yeah. different ways than we think of now. Yeah. That's uh that's actually, that's an interesting switch. If you like from the game industry back in like the eighties and the arcade era where mm-hmm. the stereotype was uh, sure. overweight, out of shape, basement dweller mm-hmm. <laughs> gamers. And we're going into a future where potentially, I mean, now it's professional gamers being like a, a it's growing into a respected career, mm-hmm. but eventually it, it may turn into full on athletes and like pro sports um, in a more similar to like what you would now recognize as a sport. Yeah. Um, which is crazy to think that that's, uh, the, the kind of future that we're going into. Yeah, and it also like empowers people who don't have those physical abilities to try those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I sort of think back to uh, the Avatar movie mm-hmm. and how like the main character was in a wheelchair and he could like experience this whole other reality. Yeah, and that was sort of like uh, an aha moment, I guess, for me. For VR, was thinking about people. Oh. In that sort of situation and what they could experience that they normally, that their physical uh, bodies wouldn't allow them to, I guess. Yeah, like opens up possibilities for um, physical limitations where you can kind of just place yourself in that environment and all of a sudden you may be just as capable or maybe more so than Mm -hmm. you ever would have been otherwise. Yeah. Tim, do you have any any advice for people who obviously are in this kind of indies in VR situation where like you said it takes bigger teams they're in a tough situation not getting funding and all of that but you've also like you said witnessed like what some part of what makes you happy is seeing people find a way through Mm -hmm. all of that um from that type of observation do you have any wise words or (laughs) sage advice for those people like wisdom of the yeah I mean, a lot of it is like finding people that you like working with, finding the people that are good at these things uh, that are haven't already been like snapped up by one of the big companies that need these types of people. And just like be fearless, I guess, really, and mm-hmm. try new things. And yeah, I mean, that's not really like any detailed words of wisdom, <laughs> but like, no, um, I mean, that's great. And like you said, I mean, it's a huge theme of everything you've talked about, both in your life and what you work in, which is find people to work with. Yeah. Find a way. Like it's really about the energy of the group. Um, Yeah. And that's sort of like interpersonal dynamic. And it's not going to work for everybody, but yeah, I mean, if you go to enough hackathons and stuff, you can find the right people that are super passionate about these things and they'll usually find a way to make it happen if they're determined enough. Mm. If you are, or someone is, they have an idea or they want to put together like a small group of people around an idea or a game, um, like what is the, what is the first step there to figure out how to fund an endeavor like that? Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to have something 
you have to be able to show some people something to get them to get behind it. Yeah. <laughs> Unless like you have like an evergreen IP like Mario or oh. Zelda or something that like you don't have to explain to somebody what that is. And yeah. <laughs> they'll just be like, here, take the money, please. Or you have like a huge name behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody that's like super famous or recognizable. Uh, you really have to like build a prototype and have like a strong pitch and have like be able to show that you can do make a thing with the people that you have. Yeah. And then like keep your scope very tight and in focus. <laughs> scope creep is a real problem. <laughs> keep the scope tight. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you have like a team of three people, don't promise like a massively multiplayer <laughs> open network world experience. RPG. <laughs> or like a half a million dollar investment that mm. that's destined to fail. <laughs> Unless you have something like the, you know, the most genius programmers on the planet, <laughs> <laughs> you really just have to start small. And like sometimes uh, you get the team together and you do like some contract work for a bigger company that needs some help on a project that they as a group. Yeah. Oh, okay. Some friends of mine have done that recently. Like, okay. Like you almost make a little agency go and do a project. Like they kind of like got their company off the ground doing like short term contracts for other companies that needed help finishing up games. Yeah. And then like proved that they could make something out of that and then like got their own, landed their own projects. So they got some credibility. Yeah, exactly. And then struck out on their own after. So you kind of have to like be humble at at first if you really want to make like a business Mm -hmm. that's sustainable. Like you have to go after like realistic uh, goals and realistic things that you can actually do. Yeah. And like just prove that you can actually do it. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of people, I think, have some sort of dream that they're going to like come up with the greatest game idea ever. And then somebody's just going to throw a bunch of money at them and they're going to get to make it. But like in the real world, that's just not. Ideas are cheap. Exactly. (laughs) People that can actually make them happen are are a lot more difficult to find. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So to kind of like sum up, if we could kind of uh, from a a high level sort of summary of just what is the what are the core values that come along with like building a really strong community behind a technology or a product or whatever it is. And like, why is that such an important thing? Um, I mean, to me, the values, like I said, are uh, inclusivity. Mm openness and transparency from the organizational level yeah is very important and then uh welcoming new people and just building that infrastructure of connected people that care about each other yeah care about the same like uh goals that we have set out as the organizers mm-hmm. and uh like bring in other good people like-minded people to be a part of that community and sort of grow it organically. A healthy sort of influx of new ideas and new perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tim, do you have, this is more of just like a personal question. I don't know <laughs> if we're going to publish it, but what, <laughs> what are you most proud of with some of the work you've been Ooh, doing? That's a good one. There's a lot, actually. I mean, personally, like the different uh, game jams that I've done, like going from... Uh, running it out of like the warehouse space in Soto mm-hmm. to like having 200 people at the Pacific Science Center uh, and being like a fixture there now and like knowing all those people and uh, feeling like connected and sort of thinking back on like I moved here and knowing nobody uh, not really knowing anything about like the games industry or anything like that mm-hmm. and just like what I've been able to build just by making connections with other people 
uh, in the community is really like personally, I guess what I'm most proud of, like just starting from zero and having seeing where we've managed to push things to now with like yeah. hardly any kind of like budget or anything and like no real training or expertise on any of it just sort of figuring it out as we go and it seems to work built your own momentum from scratch basically yeah i love that thank you tim welcome thanks for sticking around with us yeah um i hope you guys enjoyed tim um as we did thanks again tim for coming on and also uh we mentioned in the beginning that this was one of our earlier episodes he was totally a guinea pig and sat down with us like when we didn't know what we were doing in fact (laughs) in the recording afterwards of course this is cut but i said at the end i'm like cool i hope this recorded (laughs) and he just (laughs) And he just laughed. So thanks again, Tim, for for being a good sport with us. Oh yeah, really to everyone that uh, weathered through those early sessions. I think we've gotten yeah. a lot better. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, let's talk about how to follow Tim and all the cool things that mm-hmm. he's doing. Uh, so what, what do you got, Jay? Well, let's start out with social media. So yeah. for Tim himself, um, he is prominent on Facebook and Twitter, I believe, uh, for the most part. So on Twitter, you can find him at Tim Cullings. That is T-I-M-C-U-L-L-I-N-G-S. Um, so Tim Cullings on Twitter. And then also on Facebook, um, he's pretty active in a lot of the uh, social groups that are related to like mm-hmm. game de- game developers and, and indies and everything here in Seattle. Um, he is at Tim.Cullings. Uh, so that's Wait, Facebook. What, you, what does that even mean? Do you have to friend him? Or what does it mean to be Tim.Collings? Like if you go to Facebook.com, you can go to... But wouldn't you just search for Tim Collings? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I'm gonna, it's going to be hard to like transmit the the image of Tim across the wire here. So... Okay, yeah. yeah, that's fair. Okay, so Tim <laughs> Collings, maybe maybe he'll accept maybe, your friend or request yeah. <laughs> randomly. <laughs> you could follow people on Facebook. I think I don't use yeah, Facebook much I don't these know. days. <laughs> I don't know. We're doing well, a bad job, Tim. Yeah. Let us know if there's other. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we can update the, the post on the Just site. Just Google him. Yeah. yeah. Google Tim Collins. Um, but yeah. Uh, then, oh, there's uh, International Game Developers Association, which we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can go to IGDACeattle.org. That's the Seattle chapter of International Game Developers Association. Again, IGDA. Seattle.org. Um, they have a bunch of cool stuff there. You can you can follow uh, the events that they're doing mm-hmm. and get involved. Also, I think uh, on there and sometimes like on YouTube and stuff, you can actually find so they do events where they do presentations, things like mm-hmm. postmortems from like a, a game developers or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, Tim's so good at getting people and, and curating and organizing that there's some really unique stuff out there. Uh, 
And so basically you can learn a ton uh, just by just by searching them. And then also, obviously, we encourage you to get involved. Yeah. You can also find a lot of events that he's helped with uh, either planning or putting together uh, through the Seattle Indies group. And you can find them on the web at seattleindies.org. Yeah. Um, they've they, got a ton of events and stuff on like Eventbrite or Meetup and right. on Facebook as well. Yeah, and they have a monthly social gathering. I think mm-hmm. it's like every third Tuesday or something. It says it on the website. Um, mm-hmm. And I we think got a it's a pub at, call coming up too when we yeah. were recording this. <laughs> so oh, that yeah, would be, that's uh, true. That'll December. it'll be yeah. It'll yeah. it'll actually be timely coming. Oh out. right, the pub, right. The pub crawl on Friday. Yeah. Do the pub crawl. <laughs> um, I think that's like Friday the thirteenth, right? Yep. Uh, and um, they also have the hackathon coming up early next year. Right. So that so. Tim mentioned doing a hackathon and I said in the beginning it was kind of dated because it was like back in May. But they had recently done a hackathon uh, that was all about um, climate change and it was Mm -hmm. all about like creating a green tomorrow. That was the one where they collaborated with UW. Yes. And that's games for our future. But they've been doing that for a couple of years. And I think Mm -hmm. they're expanding it this year. Um, So that information should be on Seattle Indies. And I'm sure Tim will be posting a lot of it on the Facebook and other areas. Um, and uh, that Games for Our Future, I believe that the theme is all about combining uh, games with scientific research and creating a better future from all of that. So I, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? No, I think just generally good human to support in all of his endeavors. If you can find yes. something that he's putting together and you're you're new to the industry or you're looking to get into game development or learn how to develop for uh, VR or any sort of... Uh, of these spaces, then Tim is a great person to talk to, and the events he hosts or plans are really good places to get started. Without a doubt. Um, okay, so uh, I guess that's it for Tim. Yeah, so um, housekeeping for, for for Reality Quest. Yeah, uh, <laughs> follow us on go to realityquestpodcast.com. dot com. Yeah, um, that's where you can uh, check out our episodes, check out what platforms we're on, share us with other people. You can also, um, find ways to message us there, like mm-hmm. send us an email about ideas, feedback, whatever you yeah. want, just say hi. And then there's also a way to, um, give us money. Essentially. <laughs> <laughs> to give us money. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to, you know, show your, show your enthusiastic support yeah. for our coffee and sandwiches. That's yeah. <laughs> Help me. I'm poor. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, but yeah, no, seriously, Jay and I, put a lot of effort into this um any support at all if you're enjoying these episodes is greatly appreciated even if it's just a coffee we love coffee so that's great we are also on twitter it is reality underscore quest um and we are very active on instagram which is reality quest podcast yeah, and we have some exciting episodes coming up. Um, so throughout the holiday season, we're yeah. pretty excited. Uh, um, we have some really fun ones coming up. And also we've been doing some experiments. We just recorded one where we have two people on from the industry who didn't know each other. That was super fun. It's also like 10 hours. No, I'm just kidding. It's like five <laughs> though still. We will probably break that up I don't know. Yeah, part one, part two. Yeah, we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Um, but it was a first for us to have a group like that. Yeah. So we, And we've been hearing some feedback from people where they, they want to hear more of that. And we're also thinking about about having a person from the industry on along with somebody who's maybe not in the industry but has some yeah. really relevant expertise. Mm-hmm. 
And we're also thinking about doing some episodes with just Jay and I because yeah. we often just chat between each other a lot and I mean, have I think all we, these ideas. Yeah. We met up the other night and had like a five-hour conversation about <laughs> a lot of things, just topics that we d- we haven't necessarily gotten a chance to jump into yet. And uh, I think between the two of us, we'd love to do more uh, focused learning on specific areas. So it gives us an opportunity to do research. Yeah. And actually, part of that, we also got feedback that um, some people who are listening um, – don't know enough about the industry so they'd love like just a, a an episode that gives them the basics so that they can listen yeah. to episodes and um and know even more and so that's and, something we'll be working on as well yeah just like establish some base terminology and foundational uh awareness of just what's going on and where the industry's at for people that are completely outside of it mm-hmm all right. So hopefully you guys are just as excited as we are about all these ex- upcoming experiments and upcoming episodes. And, and for the holidays and breaks and trips and yeah, travel. Yeah, everyone. Have fun with all your holiday parties and whatnot. And yeah, safe travels. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Reality Quest. <laughs>